The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, through the National Weather Service, is trying to upgrade its ability to analyze water resources. It wants its forecasters to have better insight into flooding potential or water quality. Now it's asking for help from the information technology industry. To find out some of the details, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke to the chief scientist for water prediction at NOAA, Fred Ogden, and scientist Fernando Salas. Mr. Salas, we'll start with you. What is NOAA actually trying to do here? As you just mentioned, we are trying to upgrade our water prediction system so that we can provide our partners, the public, emergency responders with the best water predictions for any part of the country. So whether that's the amount of water that's flowing through the rivers and the potential inundation that may occur from extreme weather events to droughts and uh, not having enough water uh, for agriculture or many different purposes, Uh, really just trying to build a a modeling prediction system that can get the best forecasts out there so that decision makers can take the proper action to protect lives and property more. And Mr. Ogden, I think this sounds like a pretty complicated question because if you're predicting weather, you know, weather is up in the atmosphere. Water is in rivers, it's along the coasts, it's in lakes, it's in lowlands and wetlands. There's so many different circumstances where water is and the ways that it can be affected. Is there any unifying principle that can apply here? That's a really good question, Tom. As you know, NOAA models the atmosphere, and it's one atmosphere. Maybe the physics of what's happening in a particular storm vary a little bit. And we also model the ocean. The ocean dynamics are pretty well behaved. But when it comes to hydrologic prediction, it's not just water, it's soil, it's trees, it's the weather, it's how the land is used. It's a very complicated problem. And the final outcome of that is usually it means that one model isn't going to work well everywhere. Got it. And so what you envision, for example, would it have helped, do you think, in mitigating some of what happened Last week in Florida, where areas were badly flooded, it seems like the water is an after-order effect of the weather. That's true. There's an aspect of this where above a certain amount, things just are way beyond our control and flooding is going to happen. The really challenging parts are where maybe there are thresholds in nature or some little bit of rainfall in excess of some amount that you would normally plan for causes a major change. And that's, that's a really hard problem. All right. So let me ask you, uh, Fernando, what's the goal of this? It's an RFI for, I think, that's out for industry. You're looking for software or you're looking for methodologies. What are you specifically trying to get? Yeah. So over the past few months, we've been doing a lot of planning and performing a lot of market research. It's been contributing to some of the shared documents that we have released over the last few months here. Ultimately, we are looking for a software technology acquisition to help us build the framework under which uh, we can evolve the national water model, which is our operational hydrologic prediction model that we currently have in operations. It runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but we're looking to improve upon that to tackle some of the things that Fred just mentioned. So building upon that and then downstream from that, also providing the detailed, accurate inundation predictions so that we can uh, get that information over an entire watershed into the hands of decision makers. So it's that whole modeling system and how that informs decision support services that the weather service provides to emergency responders, partners, and the public. And you are the director of the geospatial office here, the geointelligence division here. So there is a geographic component, I guess, as we mentioned earlier that Fred had mentioned, it's very location-specific what's going on with water at some point on the Earth. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of 
what our, our model depends on is aggregating a lot of different types of geospatial information, whether that's information describing what the soils look like, how deep they are, where the aquifers are, where the rivers are, where the snowpack lies, where the built infrastructure is, right? We build bridges and levees and dams and reservoirs. And so being able to organize all that information in a consistent way and feed that into our model so that we can then solve the equations, that's a really important part of this. We're speaking with Fernando Salas. He's director of the Geointelligence Division and Fred Ogden, chief scientist for water prediction, both at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I wanted to ask about what effect this acquisition might have on your computing infrastructure. NOAA has supercomputers. I imagine what you're going to get is going to involve much more data, many more algorithms, a lot more processing, because that's just the way these things run. What do you think is going to happen downstream for the infrastructure of NOAA? Yeah, certainly NOAA and the Weather Service continue to invest in upgrading the supercomputing infrastructure and related components. Certainly, as like you said, as more data becomes available, we're launching satellites, new satellites every day, microsensors, you know, the Internet of Things will provide opportunities to assimilate more information into our model so that we can correct, you know, any biases that exist. So as we build out this technology and and do benchmark runs to see how much ultimate some compute power that we need. We'll certainly work with, you know, Weather Service and NOAA to continue refining those requirements and ultimately our funders and look for opportunities to continue upgrading things as necessary. And is there a interagency aspect to this? I know you sort of encompass the National Weather Service, but I imagine the Navy and Army and Air Force weather operations and water operations, lots of agencies, I think, would care about this. Both Fred and I work at the National Water Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is the instantiation of the Integrated Water Resources Science and Services Consortium, which includes FEMA, the Army Corps of Engineers, and the USGS. So we all work together to build water prediction capabilities for the country and share information with each other so that we can do that in an efficient manner. We also recently, I think in April or May, we announced a new cooperative institute for research to operations in hydrology with the University of Alabama and, a, and 20 or so different partners. So certainly engaging deeply with the research community to help accelerate some of that research to operations to inform this big IT acquisition that we're looking to make in the next year or so. The next-gen framework was the requirements and design of the framework came from a set of interagency meetings involving U.S. Geological Survey, Bureau of Reclamation, Army Corps of Engineers, and Department of Energy. You know, all the agencies have their own models. They tend to have their own modeling ecosystems. What the next-gen framework does is it breaks down those barriers between models uh, by using standards to unify how they run. And that is a, a major advance, I believe, for collaboration between federal water prediction agencies. And Fred, you are the chief scientist for water prediction and I guess I've never heard that title. Suffice it to say that water predictors don't use a Y-shaped stick to figure out what's going on. But is it your impression that water events are getting worse? I mean, you hear this in the popular press and so forth. But, you know, we had floods of Galveston in 1906 or whatever it was. What's going on with water? Or is it simply that people live near water in greater numbers than they used to? The data clearly show that the climate is shifting. The occurrence of extreme storms is increasing, uh, and it, it's irrefutable. I mean, you can argue all day about what's causing it, but the simple fact is that the climate is changing. So it is getting worse? Yes. So the solicitation then is pretty timely to get your infrastructure upgraded to be able to figure it out? 
It absolutely is. In fact, one of the things that I'll ask Fernando to talk about is the recalculation of uh, rainfall frequency data that are used to design infrastructure. Yeah, so with the support that we're getting with the bipartisan infrastructure law, we also have the opportunity to perform a national analysis to help quantify and determine how rare different precipitation events or storm events over specified durations, how rare those are and how those will be changing in a non-stationary climate. So uh, that's another work stream that we'll be working on over the next few years is to upgrade the NOAA Atlas 14 products to NOAA Atlas 15. And that will account for non-stationarity and the various climate model projections that are out there. And getting back to this RFI for industry help in this new model, what's the timeline here? So the timeline is about a, a period of five to six years. So looking for soliciting proposals sometime next year. Uh, and then the, the funding lasts uh, about five years or so. So 2026, 2027 is the is time frame we're targeting for delivery. And the delivery will be software. Yes. Fernando Salas is a water scientist, and Fred Ogden is the chief scientist for water prediction at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when 
I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, 
advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.